Welcome to the third season of Murder in 20 podcast, where I, Bobby Stevens, am your host with a new episode every Wednesday. If you're a serious fan of true crime and love listening to podcasts, but don't want all that small talk, you've come to the right place. We get right to the facts. Murder in 20 episodes are concise and complete in 20 minutes. Less talk and more true crime. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Thanks for tuning in. Tony was born into a wealthy family who made their fortune in oil. She was raised to be strong and independent and became a successful ophthalmologist and owned her own practice in Jackson, Mississippi. By her mid-thirties, she was divorced and lonely when she met Harold Henthorne. The four Collins Coloradoran reported that they met through a Christian Singles website, but it wasn't a coincidence. Harold wasn't really interested in working for a living and researched and studied the finances of three potential women whom he considered marriage material. That led him to Tony. Not only was she a successful doctor, she also earned money from her family's business. Harold had been married once before and only shared that his first wife, Lynn, had died in a car accident. But in truth, it was much more than that. In May 1995, the couple were returning home from dinner. It was late at night as they headed down a remote dark highway. They were 30 miles from their home in Denver when Harold insisted they pull over and change a tire. It hadn't gone flat, but it was low and had lost about two-thirds of its air. Harold maneuvered the car onto the gravel shoulder next to a heavily treed area. The nearest house was miles away. It was pitch black. He grabbed a flashlight and dug the spare out of the trunk, but the spare tire wasn't much better. It was almost as flat. At 9.30 p.m., a car approached. The driver happened to be a mechanic and offered to help. Although Harold claimed that he didn't know how to change a tire, he declined the mechanic's offer. The mechanic then offered to shine his headlights on their car, but again, Harold declined his help. In the next 30 minutes, something went terribly wrong. Harold tried to use a car jack, but it wouldn't budge. So he decided to use boat jacks. Perhaps he asked for Lynn's help, or maybe seeing that he was struggling, she offered. Somehow, Lynn ended up underneath the car when it fell on top of her. Crushing her between its heavy steel body and the hard, unforgiving ground. At 10 p.m., Harold flight down a car. They drove up the road to try and find a house to call for an ambulance, 
but didn't find anyone. So they turned around. Two of the men were able to lift the car up and free Lynn. She was unconscious, and Harold screamed at them not to touch her. But the men didn't listen to him. They started CPR and got Lynn breathing. It was freezing out, and they suggested Harold put his coat on Lynn to keep her warm. But he refused. Another person drove the car further up the road until they found someone who called 911. The ambulance arrived and quickly assessed the situation. The nearest hospital was a 40-minute drive, so Lynn was airlifted. She was rushed into surgery, but did not make it. Lynn died at 30 from internal injuries caused by traumatic asphyxiation. She and Harold had been married 13 years. Court records revealed that a sheriff's deputy noticed a suspicious shoe print on the top of the car's fender, suggesting that perhaps the car had been pushed off the jacks. He photographed the print. During the investigation, Harold claimed he tried to lubricate the car jack, but officers hadn't found any type of lubrication in the car. Harold told others that he was the one changing the tire, but had mentioned to the ambulance attendant that Lynn was the one changing the tire. A few days after Lynn's death, the people had stopped to help that night called police to say that they were suspicious of Harold and asked if he'd been arrested. Police asked Harold if Lynn's life was insured, and he admitted there was one life insurance policy. But in fact, less than three months earlier, he had taken out a second policy, one that would double the death benefits in the event of an accident. Harold collected $600,000 in life insurance. Although police learned of this during their brief investigation, they did not compare the shoe print in the photograph to Harold's shoes, nor did they question him on his inconsistent statements. Lynn's death was ruled an accident. Against her family's wishes, Harold quickly had Lynn's body cremated and spread her ashes on Red Mountain in Colorado. Whisked away by the winds, she rests on the high, rugged mountain range. After Lynn's death, he requested friends and family remove photos of Lynn from their home. Was a memory of that night too much for his conscience? Perhaps it was her loneliness that led Tony to overlook some of his character flaws. Or perhaps it was because Harold had convinced her he was wealthy. On September 30th, 2000, the couple were married. Soon after their wedding, Harold convinced Tony to move to Denver, Colorado. 
as reported by the New York Daily News. After the move, he became controlling and was obsessed with money. And Tony's family noticed she was no longer the strong, independent woman they once knew. After four years together, the couple had a baby girl. Over time, Harold heavily insured his wife. In fact, he had four policies that totaled one and a half million dollars. Tony's parents had also purchased a $205,000 policy on their daughter, listing their granddaughter's beneficiary. But in April 2011, Harold changed the beneficiary to himself. Harold and Tony purchased a cabin near Grand Lake, Colorado. In a secluded area, it stood alone amongst the trees. In May, the couple were staying at the cabin with their daughter. Harold was doing construction work on the deck. Late in the evening, it was dark like black coal. When he asked Tony to go below the deck, and shine a flashlight upwards. Once under the deck, she spotted some broken glass and bent down. At that precise moment, Harold threw a beam of lumber off the deck, hitting Tony on her neck and upper back. A second earlier, and it would have landed on her head. Bending down had saved her life. Harold called 911, then called friends to come and watch their daughter. He told paramedics that he threw the piece of lumber, but later in the emergency room changed his story and told a doctor that Tony had been holding a ladder for him when he slipped and dropped the lumber on her. To medical authorities, it appeared to be an accident. Tony's injuries looked to be quite serious, and she was transported to a trauma center in Denver. Once there, it turned out that they weren't critical, and she survived. A year later, in the summer of 2012, the couple were approaching their 12th wedding anniversary. But Harold was done with being married. He drove to Rocky Mountain National Park and hiked the trails. Over the next six weeks, he made eight trips to the park. After one visit, he pulled out a map and marked a pink X near the Deer Mountain Trail. Harold purchased additional life insurance for Tony. The three policies totaled $4.7 million. On September 29th, Harold suggested to Tony that they celebrate their anniversary with a hike at Rocky Mountain National Park and enjoy the spectacular fall colors. Tony had three surgeries on her knee and perhaps didn't know that it was a three-mile hike that climbed 1,200 feet. In the early afternoon, the sun was still high when the couple started their hike up the Deer Mountain Trail. Around 3.30 p.m., they left the trail to take a break and stopped at a scenic cliff and enjoyed lunch. Afterwards, they continued their hike, staying off the trail. 
At 5.15 p.m., Tony stopped at the edge of a cliff to take a photo. All of a sudden, she felt herself being pushed. Her feet had only air beneath them. Her fall broken by a tree had ripped flesh from her scalp before hitting the solid earth 100 feet below. As her body lay sprawled out, her neck was fractured, her brain was hemorrhaging, her chest, abdomen, and pelvis had taken the full force, breaking her ribs and lacerating her lungs and liver. After watching her land, it took Harold 15 minutes to hike down to his wife's body and assess her condition. Harold pulled out his cell phone, but it didn't even register one bar. He hiked back up the mountain and at 5.54 p.m. found cell service and called for help. By 6.15 p.m., Tony had taken her last breath, dead at 50. At 6.16 p.m., he texted Tony's brother, Barry, to tell him his sister was in critical condition and that the ambulance was on its way, but that he should catch the next flight. Then he said his phone battery was low and hung up. By 6.54 p.m., the dispatcher was coaching Harold through CPR. It takes a lot of physical effort, but the dispatcher wasn't hearing anything, and she found it strange that Harold didn't come back to the phone and ask for the next step. When he finally picked up his phone, he wasn't out of breath, which was unusual for someone performing CPR and it made her wonder if Harold was even doing it. So the dispatcher asked him if someone else was there performing CPR. Harold replied by saying his phone battery was low and he was turning off his phone. But his battery wasn't low. Court records indicate he made 22 calls and received 98 text messages including 16 text messages he sent to a friend asking to be picked up. It took Rangers two hours to reach Tony. By 8 p.m., the blood had drained from her body and her skin was pale. The medical examiner found no contusions or rib fractures that often happen during CPR and noticed that Tony was still wearing her lipstick without even so much as a smudge from mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Two days after Tony's death, Harold filed a claim on one of her life insurance policies. Against Tony's family's wishes, Harold quickly had her body cremated. For a second time, he visited Red Mountain in Colorado and spread his wife's ashes. The winds whispered her name as he carried her off to rest among 
the mountain peaks. During their investigation, detectives discovered that while Harold pretended to be unfamiliar with the park, he described a white sheet on a cliff near where Tony fell. But rangers had removed that sheet the week before, and his phone records revealed his numerous trips. In Harold's car, they found the map marked with that pink X. Investigators learned of Tony surviving a falling beam. Then they delved into Harold's past and Lynn's death. They thought it odd that a man lost two wives in tragic accidents, in remote locations, with no witnesses and no cell service. His first wife, dead after 13 years. His second wife, dead after 12 years. A pattern had emerged. Investigators took another look at Lynn's case, but after so many years, did not have enough evidence to charge Harold with her death. It took investigators two years, but finally, in November 2014, Harold was indicted on first-degree murder charges for Tony's death. He pled not guilty. In September 2015, Harold went on trial. His defense lawyer argued that Tony fell accidentally. He did not call a single witness to testify. The prosecution laid out all the circumstantial evidence. The life insurance, Harold's lie about performing CPR, his inconsistent statements, his phone records, and the map with an X drawn on the exact spot Tony fell. At the end of the two-week trial, jurors found him guilty, and the judge sentenced him to life in prison. Harold appealed his conviction, but in July 2022, it was denied. This episode brings back memories of Jordan Graham, featured in our Season 2 episode, My Safest Place to Fall. Jordan was young when she met Cody. Before their wedding, she had cold feet. Eight days after they got married, they got into an argument, and Cody suggested they drive to Glacier National Park and watch the sunset. Only one of them made it out alive. Thanks for listening to Murder in 20 with less talk and more true crime. Be sure to tune in next Wednesday for the episode of Rena Verk. At 14, she was trying to find her place in this world and thought she'd found new friends. But one dark night, they turned on her. After the attack, Rena was still alive, until two returned and took her to a watery grave. If you're dying to hear more, past episodes of Murder in 20 are available for free at murderin20.com 
and on all major podcast platforms. We love what we do and are dying to continue. If you enjoy listening to Murder in 20 every week, we'd be eternally grateful for your support by visiting Murder in 20 at Patreon, PayPal, or Murder20.com. We'd like to acknowledge Verbal Planet for use of their music, sound effects and fasting studios and quick sounds, and our many editorial sources who are listed on our website. Be sure to like, share, and follow us to learn about upcoming episodes every Wednesday. Stay safe, sleep with the lights on, and don't play with strangers. <laughs>